Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. Today we brought you here to uh, highlight one of our more recent successful arrests. If you're a crime reporter, there's a pretty good chance that you've covered a drug bust or two. The chief of police or the head of the drug unit calls a press conference and lays out the usual props. Bags of cocaine, ecstasy pills, stacks of $100 bills. And before me here, you see the results of that arrest. But covering a drug bust after the fact is one thing. Being part of one, now that's a different story altogether. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. In the summer of 2011, Regina Leader Post reporter Barb Pahalik was approached by the RCMP with an unusual offer. Did she want to be embedded with one of their undercover drug units? They were in the middle of a massive operation called Project Feral, monitoring 16 loads of cargo moving across the U.S.-Canada border. 1.3 tons of cocaine and 800,000 pills of ecstasy, all worth tens of millions of dollars. Barb would end up spending months with this ultra-secretive division of the RCMP, making her the first journalist in Canada to join a federal drug bust from the inside. She couldn't even tell her boss or her husband what she was doing. But when it was all said and done, Barb would be able to give readers a window into a world that they rarely get a chance to see. I recall getting a phone call from uh, a contact within the communications division over at the RCMP. I remember I was about to go on summer holidays and I said, I don't know if I can make a meeting. I was sort of told it might be worth my while and I probably want to be at that meeting. So I came in on my holidays and went to this meeting at the RCMP headquarters here in Regina. Didn't exactly know who I was meeting with and kind of got ushered into this conference room and saw a lot of suits sitting around the table and wondered what the hell was going on. (laughs) The RCMP was looking for ways to give some of their plainclothes divisions a little bit more exposure. Everyone understands, you know, what a uniform Mountie does, but they don't always understand some of those other complex units, you know, economic crime or the drug unit. You know, I think as you're a reporter, you do ride-alongs, right? Every now and then you go out with the crowd control unit or something and you hang out with them for a night. But this was sort of a ride-along that was going to go on for months. And I don't think I understood the scope of the investigation or the scope of what I was doing until I was kind of into it for a bit. And you mentioned that the higher up wanted the plainclothes guys to have some exposure, but was everyone on the team happy to see you at the beginning? I would hazard to guess no. I mean, these are men and women who live their lives very much in secret, right? Most of the people within the RCMP don't know what they're doing. So to have a reporter who it's drilled into your head you should never talk to suddenly show up in their offices, 
I mean, I never felt like I got the cold shoulder, let me say that. But I, I do think even some people sort of said to me, you know, as an aside, it's really weird having you here. And as time went on, I think I was just one more person in the office and people sort of got used to me. Did you feel like you had to build trust with these guys or was it like you said, just sort of a, you were there all the time and eventually they got used to you? I think it's a bit of both. I'd never covered anything like this before. I mean, you don't talk to people like this, right? Like you're not let into these offices. So I think I was finding my way as much as they were and they were trying to figure out you know, what they could share. And I was trying to figure out who I needed to talk to. I mean, half the time I didn't even know people's names because everyone went by a nickname. Some of those names I still probably don't know. I remember going to that very, very first meeting um, where I was sort of introduced and you're sitting around this table and, you know, you're seeing a lot of like black t-shirts and goatees and chains dangling out of pockets. These guys are used to doing undercover work within the drug unit and blending in. So they do blend in. I mean, they didn't look what you thought Mounties should look like. So what was the nature of your deal with them? Were there rules at all? What was the back and forth there? When I went into that meeting, I didn't initially say, yeah, pick me, I'm going to do it. I kind of went back to my boss and, and we had a discussion about you know what this might look like. I didn't sign anything. There was no non-disclosure agreement or anything like that. The only agreement really was that I wouldn't report on what I was there for and covering until it was over, until the takedown had happened. That was the agreement. There was one small thing, and this is something that even within a court, they wouldn't be forced to disclose. But if there was uh, certain investigative techniques that are kind of privileged, that I wouldn't sort of talk about those in my stories. But nobody proofed those stories. And in fact, I said to them, if this whole thing goes sideways, I'm going to report on that too. Like there's no agreement that this is just going to be a positive story. This is me being a fly on the wall and telling this story, whatever that story looks like. But you had to not tell your husband, your friends couldn't know. Yeah, that's that's true. Like, I barely told my boss what I was doing. Like, he knew in a very kind of rough way what I was kind of doing. But there was a point where we were going to be heading off down the highway and I'm packing a bag. My husband needs to know I'm leaving. But the discussion was sort of like, okay, I'm leaving. It's that RCMP thing. I can't tell you what it's about, but I'll probably be okay. And I don't know how many days I'll be gone because I didn't. So, yeah, secrecy is kind of drilled into the division there. And, and I took it seriously. I mean, I understood that I, I think as journalists, we're all big gossips, but I didn't gossip about this. <laughs> I mean, there are issues with journalists being embedded and making agreements with authorities because it sort of contradicts our place in society and what we think we're doing versus what they think we're doing. And being embedded with police, military is always a quandary for journalists, right? Do we become too close to that side? Do we lose our quote-unquote objectivity? I think my editor recognized very, very early on that I had some qualms. And he sort of said to me, like, what is it? And I said, it's because they invited me. Like, I didn't knock on their door and say, can I do this? they came to me. And so you're immediately suspicious. You're right. And there's that line between being embedded versus being in bed with, right? I think where I sort of reconciled it myself is nobody was reading those stories and saying, this can go, that can't go. 
so for me, that was part of it. I think it was an ability to go inside an investigation that no one had ever been able to do. And I think in that way, I could tell the public something about what it takes to build these sorts of investigations. So let's talk about the scope of the project. Give me a bit more of an understanding of what Project Feral was. Everyone always says, well, why Feral? So within F Division, which is Saskatchewan, all their big investigations start with the letter F. It was Project Feral because it began in F Division. But it didn't just stay in F Division. So there were officers there from Regina Police as well as the RCMP. But this investigation was far bigger than that. There were officers in Alberta and in BC. Homeland Security was involved and drug investigators on the US side. This was an investigation that spanned several provinces and states. The drugs, as was explained to me, were coming up from places like Colombia. And then the cocaine would move up to California. And then from California, it was being trucked across and into Montana, and then across the border into Saskatchewan, and then back to BC. The buyers for the drugs were based in BC, but it was understood that it was a lot harder to get those drugs across the border in BC because of the mountains, but also given the amount of security along that border. And so I think for these drug couriers, it was just seen as an easier way to get the drugs across, despite the distances you were having to travel. About a year before Barb joined Project Feral, the RCMP had made a bust in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. What they eventually learned was there was a network of guys based in BC who were kind of like drug couriers for hire. So if you were the Hells Angels and you wanted to move drugs, you hired these guys to move your drugs and to move your money and your pills. So the way the operation worked was cocaine would come up from the south and ecstasy pills would move from BC down south. And then some money would change hands and the couriers got their cut of the cash. During one of the runs that they were making, the guy who had come up from the States was heading back to the States and a border guard from the US, from Montana, shows up and stops him. And this guy doesn't have a very good explanation as to what he's doing there in the middle of the night in this back road. And he's taken in and he's questioned. Eventually, the Mounties are called in and he decides to go to work for the Mounties. So he becomes their undercover operator inside this investigation. And it was because of that, they were able to learn more about the network, how the loads were moving, that sort of thing. So by the time I'm brought in, it's getting close to where they want to do the final takedown. And it's kind of like this big, well-orchestrated thing because they want to be able to monitor the pills that are going south and they want to be able to monitor the cocaine going north in the hopes of eventually following where it goes and busting the more upper echelons of the people. But by that point, they had tons of wiretap evidence and messaging and everything. They had a lot of 
evidence already of what was going on. It's just this was going to be the final thing and then the takedown would happen. Barb spent months sitting in meetings with the RCMP, listening to wiretaps and reading texts that they'd intercepted. A plan had started to take shape, and now it was time to set it in motion. We leave from headquarters in Regina. I'm put in a vehicle, and there is a number of vehicles that are leaving all at the same time. We head off down the highway. I remember we stopped at one point just outside of Walmart. You know, everyone sort of gathers around and everyone's running in because it's that night is when you're going to be up all night, right? So people are grabbing whatever they might need in their vehicles. And there's like lots of granola bars and chocolate bars and chips and, you know, the glamorous life of undercover. But for me, there's sort of this, okay, I'm going to be in this vehicle a long time and I don't know where the next bathroom is. So how much coffee do I want to drink? Because I'm going to be in that vehicle and I don't know when I can get out of that vehicle. So (laughs) there's those kind of decisions that happen as well. Um, We had supper, we head out on the highway and everyone was kind of in different spots. So there was a team right where they knew the exchange was supposed to take place. It's an old farmyard. There's not a lot out there. It's kind of flat land, not a lot of trees. I remember the head of the operation sort of saying, you guys are going to stick out out there, so make sure you've got good cover and stuff. There's nothing out there, right? So there were some sharpshooters in that team for the safety of the operative because they don't know what the bad guys know either, right? Like what intel have they got? Is their operation blowing? Like all of that. So there's a lot of questions and a lot of tension because it's like playing a game of chess. Like you don't know what the other guy's thinking, right? And everyone's sort of waiting for that next move. It might have been a game of chess, but that doesn't mean that it was a particularly sophisticated smuggling operation. The guy who was driving, he sort of had this, what I like to call a scrap of a map. It would be like if someone sort of said, go there, and they ripped off a corner of Saskatchewan. He had the smallest corner of that map. And so he got lost, and they're traveling with their lights off because they don't want people to see them. I mean, there's nobody out there. So if you're the one farmyard who's out there and you see lights moving at night, you're going to be a little suspicious. So they typically would travel without their lights on. And they were having trouble connecting. So there's a lot of tension because this is a well-timed thing, right? Like you've got your people waiting. We're waiting for the vehicle to come this way. And he's in the meantime, if you're from Saskatchewan, you know a lot of gas stations close up (laughs) for the evening. So past like six o'clock at night, it's hard to find a gas station. This guy hasn't bothered to fuel up. And so he's also running low on gas, and he can't find the guy he's supposed to meet. Years later, I'm sitting in the courtroom, and I'm hearing the recorded conversation that was made with the couriers as they met at that border point. It's quite funny to listen to because it's cold, and the guy's making comments about how freaking cold it is in Saskatchewan in October. And 
he's trying to get this guy stop. You hear him constantly stopping because he's on an ATV and he's constantly stopping and messaging. And so he's getting frustrated and it's dark and he can't see anything. And then in the background, you hear these coyotes howling and he says like, Frick, I'm going to get eaten or something like that. So it's kind of funny to listen to it. It's not like television, you know, these are just good old boys in the backcountry who are really fish out of water. They're from BC. They don't know about coyotes in Saskatchewan. Eventually, the couriers find each other and they make the swap. The Canadian courier takes the coke and gives the American guy the ecstasy pills. Barb's sitting in a van with a bunch of RCMP officers, watching the whole thing unfold. But they don't make the bust right away. The RCMP doesn't just want to seize the drugs. They want to know where they're going. So they get back on the highway and follow the courier. There's a lot of like pit stops along that highway and he's pulled into one of the pit stops um, and they say like someone needs eyes on him, someone needs to pull in and we just happen to be the closest vehicle. So we pulled in and the officers I was with sort of said, basically, we just wanted to look like any other travelers on the highway getting out of the vehicle. So I got out and one of the other officers got out and she's a smoker. And so she was standing there smoking. And I went in to use the washroom. And he at that point came out of the washroom. And so that was sort of my first chance to actually see who this guy was that we had been watching for days and all night. But I was just one more person on a highway stopping to have a pee, right? So, and as was he, as it turned out. And then eventually we're all back on the highway and heading down the highway. Originally, this was all supposed to be one big orchestrated thing where the takedowns would happen in the north and at the south at the same time. So they would see who was getting the pills. They would see where that cocaine was headed and everything would happen. I mean, as someone said to me, it's doper time and they don't do things the way you think they're going to do. And so nothing was really on time and nothing in the end could be quite as finely tuned as they wanted it. A decision was made that they didn't have operationally the manpower to keep going all the way down the Coquihalla Highway. And they decided to take down the vehicle in Salmon Arm. So there's a point where you get to the traffic lights. I remember a McDonald's on one side and it's done very well. You wouldn't have even known like this guy had no moment to sort of go, oh, wait, who's that? Right. Like one of the cops sort of gets out and there's a semi parked to one side and he sort of tells the semi driver, don't move, just stay there. And then the car is blocked in from the other side and Essentially, he's boxed in and they get him out of the vehicle. And it was as we were heading towards that point that, as I say, officers were pulling on bulletproof vests and getting their guns ready. And I mean, this was considered a high risk takedown because they really didn't know what this guy may or may not have been armed with. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, gee, I, I guess maybe I could have been at some risk. I, You know, but it, at the time, I was just sort of focused on taking notes and what I, describing everything and being able to remember everything to tell a story. I was so focused on that. I didn't even think about like, I don't know. I like to think they would have took a bullet for me. I don't know. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been good to have a reporter killed on your watch? No, I but think. I mean, if the guy can run out of gas and they forget to worry about that, they could also get in a shootout and you don't have a vest on. 
I mean, I did, to be honest, like before we left, I did have to sign a like a waiver. Like if you're killed on our watch, it's not our fault sort of thing. I, I think I signed something like that. Um, all these years later, like looking back on it, what lessons do you take from it? What impact did it have on you as you move forward? Did it sort of shift anything in your mind about how you viewed policing? Or I knew you were going to ask this question, and I was trying to think about it yesterday. I think it gave me insight, right? As you said at the start, you know, drug trials happen an awful lot. But I don't think you ever really appreciate all of the people behind that operation. You know, you see one or two officers who come into court and testify, but to actually appreciate the amount of manpower and work and woman power that goes into that, that for me, I think was part of the takeaway. I mean, I always understood it, but now I really understood it. I think the other thing was in court, you get a bit of a sanitized sense of what a case is. It's like seeing two sides of the coin, right? Seeing it from the one side where I was there to witness things versus hearing about it in a courtroom were very different things. Like somehow one felt very, very real and one wasn't as real. But then also seeing all the pieces that came together, the intelligence and the amount of people. This investigation, although it was called Project Feral in Canada, it was white rhino down in the south. So it was really understanding and seeing the scope of this. As a court reporter, you know, you always see the results of the drugs on the street. Like we know about the thefts and the robberies and the break-ins and the devastation in families from overdoses, particularly now with fentanyl. We see that side of it. But I think these guys really felt insulated from that. This was just a few good old boys who thought they could make a buck. And they weren't the impoverished guys who were out on the street selling dime bags. Like, these guys had money. They just wanted more money. One of them, his family, owned quite a bit of land in the um, Okanagan Valley. He liked to have a lot of women around him. He liked expensive clothes. He was tanned. You know, he's all those things that the people who are using these drugs are not. And I think seeing it from both sides and really grasping some of those stark differences was part of what stayed with me more than anything. You know, these guys moved 1.3 tons of cocaine, right? Most of which reached its destination, let's be clear. Of 16 loads, they only, only intercepted three. So that's a lot of drugs that reach the street and just a lot of misery, right? Crime Byline is produced and mixed by Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. The executive producers at Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antiga. Special thanks to Russell Wangerski, the editor-in-chief of the Regina Leader Post, and Aaron Valwa, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media. Post Media.